Hey everyone, this is Jake, lead pastor of Christ City Church, East Vancouver, and I want to let you know about a few things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 2605 East Pender Street in East Vancouver for worship, word, and sacrament. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church East Vancouver is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to be a part of or hear more of what we believe God has called us to do in East Vancouver, please reach out to me at jake at christcitychurch.ca. Today's scripture is Exodus 5 to 6 verses 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore, they cry, let us go and offer sacrifices to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people of the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, You are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people and you have not delivered your people at all. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will send them out. 
and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. You may be seated. And as you're being seated, let's pray together. Father, we know that salvation is a process in which things sometimes become worse before they become better. And we confess that we don't like that. So Lord, we ask that you would help us this morning in our struggles, in our hardship, in our grief, in our pain. Would you meet us? Would you meet us with the person of Jesus? Would he become to us our good Lord, our good Savior, our good Master? It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, when I was a child, one uh, Christmas, my parents and I gave, uh, my parents gave my siblings and I a, a gift, uh, a trip to Disney World. Now, Disney World, if you don't know, is the better Disney place that the rest of Canada goes to. So in BC, you go to Disneyland. Uh, the rest of Canada goes to Disney World. And it's a whole world, not just a land. And it's, it's better. Uh, and the trip was, was, was three months away. And so we had three months to prepare for it. And back then, there was no YouTube. And so on the website, there were three or four videos. And we would just watch those on repeat. Just again and again and again. Uh, my siblings and I, we would, we would talk about which water park we were going to go to, because again, there's multiple water parks, and we would talk about, you know, what we're going to eat while we're there, and we'd even put aside money to, to spend on special treats. It was a, a, a three months of anticipation. And finally, this day arrived, and we went to Disney World. And while there were certainly magical moments, uh, none of the promotional videos featured the hours-long lines. None of the promotional videos had images of families fighting with each other in the middle of the park. It wasn't in the videos. And none of the promotional videos had the smoke from the nearby forest fires kind of going over Mickey. None of it had that stuff. In short, while lots of fun, the Disney world I had built up in my mind was quite different than the Disney world I found myself in. And maybe you've been to Disney with children before and you know this experience. If I could go back to my 12-year-old self, I would say something like, what did you expect? What did you expect? With, with baptisms approaching in the coming weeks, this question, what did you expect, is a timely one for us as a church. In a few weeks' time, brothers and sisters in Christ will participate in this act of obedience, marking the beginning of their life in submission to King Jesus. And as we prepare for that day, one of the questions I ask all baptismal candidates is something like this. What are you expecting from following Jesus? What do you think it will be like? What do you expect? The same question, what do you expect is before us in our text this morning as we see Moses and Israel have been given God's plan and then at the end of chapter 4, having responded in faith, now taking their first steps out into this life of obedience. What is Moses expecting from Yahweh? 
What is Moses expecting from his plan for his life? What does Israel think belonging to Yahweh will be like? I want us to work through our text this morning in three points, very simply. Liberation versus slavery. Burdens versus rest. Expectations versus reality. So if you have your Bibles, first point, open up. Exodus 4, uh, verse 31. We're going to read from there to to 5, verse 1. First point, liberation versus slavery. Look in your Bibles with me. It says this. And the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go. We're going to hear that a lot in the coming weeks. Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. We'll stop there. So Israel has just received good news. The greatest news, actually. God, not just any God, but, but the God is their God is with them, is for them, is on their side. Well, inasmuch they're on his side. And he plans to liberate them from Egypt. So, so Moses and Aaron go before Pharaoh. They go before the, this king of the superpower, and they say, here's what Yahweh says, the God of the Hebrews. He is freeing us that we might worship him. Notice that. He is freeing us that we might worship him. Verse 1, let my people go, they say, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Skip down to verse 3. Again, they say to Pharaoh, please let us go three days journey into the wilderness. Why? That we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. At its core, in its essence, Liberation from Egypt is about more than geographical relocation. It's about more than political autonomy. It's about, at its core, worship. Worship and devotion. It's about Yahweh bringing hearts to himself that are completely devoted to him. Not divided, but devoted to him. Notice, look look back at your Bibles. There are competing claims of ownership on the Israelites throughout our text. Verse 1 says, the Lord says, let my people go. And then Pharaoh says, verse 2, I will not let Israel go. Verse 3, the Lord says, my people must worship me. Verse 4, Pharaoh says, you're lazy. I need those people to work for me, to, to, to worship me, essentially. Verse 6 says, Pharaoh commanded. And if we were reading in the Pentateuch, in Genesis so far, we would see that only God commands. Here, Pharaoh thinks he can command God's people. Our text began, thus says the Lord. And verse 10 says, thus says Pharaoh. Two competing masters. Two owners two lords before us today. And while the two offer something radically different, they both require complete and total submission. Let's pause. Is that how you conceive of the Christian life? Complete and total submission to the one who has bought you, who owns you, 
as a life which no longer belongs to you, not in the abstract, but in the absolute? Or do you think, do we think that Jesus saved us, that Yahweh saved Israel only to put us, only to put them back at the wheel, back in charge? One of the problems, one of the issues we regularly encounter in pastoral ministry is this idea, occasionally spoken, uh, often expressed in unspoken ways, that Jesus saved me so that I can be fulfilled. That Jesus saved me so that I can be happy. That Jesus saved me so that things will work out for me. And again, to be even more frank, while this idea is found everywhere and throughout time, it is. I find this idea primarily amongst people with backgrounds similar to mine. Millennials, evangelicals, who have been sold this lethal cocktail of one-part prosperity gospel where the good news is material and one-part therapeutic gospel where the good news is felt. And ultimately, me and my peers have just swapped out Pharaoh for themselves and we have a Jesus who looks on approvingly at our own lordship. One commentator reminds us, The point of the exodus is not freedom in the sense of self-determination, but service. The service of the loving, redeeming, delivering God of Israel rather than the state and its proud king. Jesus has not come to deliver you from sin and Satan and death, only to see you go back into slavery of autonomous individualism. Jesus has not saved you only for you to return to the lordship of self-determinationism. Yet this cycle of being liberated to serve God, only to return to self-imposed slavery, is something we see repeated all the time. Had two Bible commentators, Andrew Wilson, Alistair Roberts, they write this. The greatest threat to true freedom, it seems, do not come from external oppression, but from within. So when George Orwell wrote his, favorite, uh, his famous book, 1984, you know that book, he envisioned the greatest threat to our future freedom being enemies without, big brother, overbearing state, so forth. But when Aldous Huxley wrote his famous book, A Brave New World, he envisioned the greatest threat to our future freedom being enemies within, Greed, insatiable desires, longing for our own kingship and lordship of our own sovereign spheres. And while the Bible speaks to both of those visions, both Orwell's and Huxley's, as enemies to be overcome, I think it's Huxley's enemy, the enemy within, that the Bible is much more concerned about because it's much more pernicious. What should you expect from coming to Jesus? You should expect a king who is a king who is unwaveringly committed to your wholehearted devotion to him. You should expect a Lord who will decenter you from the center of your life. You should expect a king who will use whatever circumstance and whatever events to see that this wholehearted devotion happens. 
And if this Jesus sounds to you a lot like Pharaoh, turn with me to our second point where we discover that his worship and our good are the very same thing. Look at point two. Burdens versus rest. Whether to Egypt or to ourselves, life enslaved to anyone or anything other than God can only be described as burdensome. Burdensome. Look at verses four to nine. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Listen, get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. On the same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that you made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore, they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Verse 9, let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. When you're living in Egypt, you only have two options. You can despair, as Israel has done, as Israel will do, or you can play the game. You can play the game. Notice the accusation throughout our text that the Israelites are idle or lazy. Verse 8, Pharaoh says, for they are idle. Later in verse 17, but Pharaoh said, you are idle, you are idle. And that is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. In Pharaoh's mind, Israel wants to leave, not to worship Yahweh, but because they're lazy. In Pharaoh's mind, Israel's rightful place is not at rest, but at endless, tireless, backbreaking, burdensome work. And I think today, we don't need a Pharaoh or a king to impose this kind of thinking on us. Proving once more that the greater enemy is within, we gravitate towards this kind of thinking on our own. Some of you know that during World War II, over the gates at Auschwitz, there was a slogan that read, Arbeit macht frei. Work brings freedom. Work brings freedom. Of course, the Nazis did not mean this in a literal sense. No one could work their way out of Auschwitz. Rather, as one author writes about its creator, SS officer Rudolf Haas, he seems, Haas, not to have intended it as mockery, nor even to have intended it literally as a false promise that those who worked to exhaustion would eventually be released, but rather, listen, as a kind of mystical declaration that self-sacrifice in the form of endless labor does in itself bring a kind of spiritual freedom. Now, while we would rightly reject the horrors of Auschwitz, I think many of us would, at least in practice, functionally subscribe to the model that hung over its gates. Work brings freedom. If we have not despaired, we have decided on some level to play the game, which means 
We decided to locate our meaning and purpose and worth and future and identity and belonging and hope in the labor of our hands, the work of our hands. For many of us, to think that there could be life outside of work, that there could be rest, is a fabrication. As Pharaoh said to his foreman, those are lying words. What Pharaoh and his world don't want you to believe is that that there is a way out from under your burdens that doesn't depend on you, that doesn't rise and fall with your efforts, that there is again, look at verse 5, rest from your burdens. Literally, Pharaoh accuses Moses of providing for the people Sabbath from their burdens. That's what you're trying to do, Moses. That's what you're trying to do, Aaron, is give these people Sabbath from their burdens. And of course, Pharaoh's right. Yahweh does invite Israel off of the roller coaster of despair or finding ultimate meaning in their labor by inviting them not only to worship him, but as an expression of that worship, to rest in him. See, the kind of worship that Pharaoh demanded was burdensome labor. But the kind of worship that Yahweh desires to give is life-giving rest. See, Tim Keller says, Sabbath was a declaration of freedom. And today, though we are no longer under the Sabbath commands, when we wisely take time to rest, here's what we're saying. We say, work, I am no longer your slave. Cultural expectations, I I am no longer your slave. Insecurities, I am no longer your slave. In faith, we declare that we believe Jesus' life-giving and liberating words from the cross when he said over us, over his church, it is finished. What did you expect from following Jesus? What did you expect? Did you expect to swap out one burden for another burden? One cruel taskmaster for another cruel taskmaster. And one of the things that breaks my heart is when I've been walking with a brother or sister in Christ who've known Jesus for decades, who have worshipped him as king, who have seen him as powerful, but never known him as good. Never found him as kind. I want you to hear this morning how our Lord describes himself. Listen to how Jesus describes apprenticeship to him. Hear how Jesus talks of rest and burdens. Matthew 11, 28 to 30. Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. He's a king. He says, come to me. But then what does he say? And I will give you rest. 
Again, commands, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. He's a king. But then what does he say? For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And again, you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When Jesus is saying he's lowly, he's saying, I'm accessible. I'm for all of you. It doesn't matter how you came this morning. Jesus is saying, I'm for you. It doesn't matter what you've been through this morning. Jesus is saying, I'm for you. I'm accessible to you. You don't have to do something to get to me. I've come to you. I'm accessible, he's saying. When he says that he's gentle, he's saying, I'm not harsh. I'm not ruthless. I'm not like an Egyptian slave driver, an Egyptian taskmaster. That's not who I am. A yoke in that world would be the heavy crossbar laid on oxen to drive farming equipment through a field. And when Jesus describes his yoke as he does, he's saying in the words of Dane Ortland, one author, that his yoke is a non-yoke. His burden is a non-burden. What helium does to a balloon, Jesus' yoke does to his followers. He writes, we are buoyed along in life by his endless gentleness and supremely accessible lowliness. He doesn't simply meet us at our place of need. Listen, he lives in our place of need. He never tires of sweeping us into his tender embrace. It is at his very heart. It is what gets him out of bed in the morning. Is there a master like Jesus? Is there a Lord like Jesus? What did you expect? What did you expect? Last point. Expectations versus reality. Expectations versus reality. If our text this morning begins with hopeful worship... It ends in despair and unbelief. Israel is not liberated after this initial confrontation with Pharaoh, but they are driven further, deeper into slavery. Verse 19. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. Less material that you need, same quota. Our text ends with the Israelite foreman not thanking Moses, not shaking their hands, but cursing them. Verse 20 and 21. They met Moses and Arian who were waiting for them. And you can imagine they're waiting like, okay, here come our people. They're going to greet us. And what do they get in return? And as they came out from Pharaoh and they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. It ends with, Not Moses celebrating the deliverance of his people, not praying a prayer of thanksgiving and celebration to Yahweh, but with a prayer of lament. He accuses God of utterly failing them, of even doing evil to them. Verse 22 to 23, Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? 
For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. Listen, and you have not delivered your people at all. Not even a little bit at all. It is clear from the response of the foreman to Moses and Aaron and from the response of Moses to God that this is not what they were expecting. And as a result of these unmet expectations and worsening conditions, despite the abuse they've suffered at his hand, the Israelite foremen are clamoring back to Pharaoh, clamoring back to him, proclaiming their allegiance to Pharaoh. Look, look at verse 15. Three times in verses 15 to 16, the Israelite foremen call themselves servants, not of Yahweh, but of Pharaoh. Look at this. Verse 15, then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh. Notice, they do not cry to Yahweh. They cry to their functional Lord. They cry to Pharaoh. Why do you treat your servants, that's Pharaoh, like this? No straw is given to your servants. Yet they say to us, make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. We, we can sympathize with the foreman, can we not? Belonging to Yahweh thus far has been anything but a skip in the park. It has, for the moment anyways, made an already hard situation harder. I can't help but think of a parable that Jesus told. It's one involving seeds and soils. In this parable, in the story that Jesus tells, the seed represents God's good news of liberation. And the soil, a person's heart condition in receiving this good news and the various responses that we witness in this world. And there's one soil type that Jesus talks about that I think is especially relevant here. Matthew 13, 5 to 6. It says, Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. What does this mean? What, what kind of situation is Jesus talking about here? Well, a little later he explains, As for it was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who, listen, hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. But you think of the Israelites at the end of chapter 4. They receive this word, and they, and they celebrate with joy. Keep on reading. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately falls away. The rocky soil is the soil of unmet expectations. It's the soil fertilized with the words of liars who promise wealth and prestige and complete healing here and now. And it's helped along by a heart that also desires all those things. And living in the time and place that we do, I have no doubt that it's a soil found, at least in part, in all of us. What were you expecting when you decided to follow Jesus? What were you promised? What, what do you think you were promised? 
I want us to end this morning by reorientating ourselves according to Exodus 5 as to what we should expect this side of eternity. The first thing is this. In case it isn't clear, we should expect setbacks and disappointments. There is this implicit thread in the response of the foreman to Moses and Moses to God that this is not how it's supposed to go. It's supposed to be, Lord, up and to the right, and this is down, down, down. So much so that the the foreman believed that their problem is, is actually not with Yahweh, but with Moses. Surely Moses has misrepresented God or or not followed God's instructions in some respect. Look at what they say. The Lord look on you and judge because surely he's going to judge you, Moses, for not doing the right things. There is an unspoken presumption in the foreman that a good God does not let hard and dangerous and harmful or difficult things happen to his people. And that's just not true. It's just not true, brothers. It's just not true, sisters. If we are to stand in the thousands of years of history of being called God's people, we must recognize the lavish, opulent, self-seeking, often therapeutic, so-called Christianity of our day for what it is. Oftentimes not a Christianity at all. Not allegiance to Jesus at all but a self-betterment program. It's Jesus as an addition, not Jesus as Lord. We must, by God's grace and with his help, lift our eyes from ourselves, not only to the word of God, not only to church history, but also to the immense suffering of countless brothers and sisters in Christ around the world today, right now of brothers and sisters in Christ in Iran, in parts of Asia, brothers and sisters in Christ in South America, who have foregone livelihoods and well-being for the sake of the gospel. And we have to wonder, would we do the same thing in their position? These are brothers and sisters who are experiencing, to a degree that would shock us, what I want us to look at next, which is this, too, Third thing we need to do to reorient ourselves, we should expect to be a stench to this world, to be stinky. The foremen tell Moses and Aaron that because of them, what do they say? They've become a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants. Now this stench will become literal in the subsequent chapters as God sends plagues and the fish in the Nile rot and literally stink, as God sends frogs and those frogs decompose in mass piles, there will be a literal stench in Egypt. But but here, in our text, the stench is not in the nostrils, but in Pharaoh's heart. It's an interior disgust. It is the stench of an altogether more powerful king bringing a better kingdom that signals to Pharaoh and all who pledge allegiance to him the death and the passing away of their kingdom, of their way of being. God's people have always been stinky to the kings and kingdoms who set themselves in opposition to him. And this is true today. 
The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 2, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, listen, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. For those being saved by Christ, we smell like life. But for those who are perishing, we stink. We we reek of death. This is the way it's always been. And so, hear this. If we are unanimously liked and adored by this world, if we are universally applauded and accepted wherever we go, we should ask if we're truly bringing the aroma of Christ with us. We should expect to be a stench to some in this world, to stink. Third thing, last thing. We should expect God to have the last word. In the Hebrew text, our passage today ends not in 5.23, but actually in 6.1. And so 6.1 says this. This is how the text ends. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. The accusations that Moses has laid before God are staggering. God, you've done evil. God, you have not kept your promises at all. Moses is angry with God. Maybe you're angry with God. Notice a few things. Moses' anger is not too much for God. Nor does God feel the need to explain himself to Moses. He does not say why things have to be this hard. Though they know the big picture, God doesn't always give the reasons behind why Israel must endure all this pain. His ways, Isaiah 55, are above theirs and above ours. But notice also that what Yahweh promises to do is more, is better than what Pharaoh asked for. Moses asked Pharaoh for a three-day reprieve into the wilderness, but Yahweh says, with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. God will bring Pharaoh to his knees and compel him to do what he does not want to do. God has not and will not utterly fail, as Moses has accused him of doing. No, in the end, Egypt will give to Israel much more than a day pass to worship Yahweh. He will save them completely and entirely and perfectly. And just so, the author of Hebrews writes of Jesus that he is able to save to the uttermost, completely, entirely, every bit of us, those who draw near to God through him. Friends, Jesus saves completely, which means God is not a liar. He is not holding out on us. There is rest from your burdens. There is life in the midst of death. There is joy in suffering more than you can imagine. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, give us faith to believe what we cannot see.
lives to accept that which is outside of our control. Faith to believe that you are who you say you are. And where we have placed ourselves in the position of king and CEO of our lives, we ask for your forgiveness. We repent. And we turn our hearts back to you this morning. Lord, I pray if there's someone here who does not know you, that they would come to know you, that they would believe in you and trust in you, that they would find that you are the good Lord and the good king, the gentle and lowly one, the accessible one, Lord, that we might celebrate together as your children, as you add to your flock. We love you, Jesus. Help us to obey your word as we leave this place. Amen.